wonderful to be here together as we as we dwell here together this morning. It's my prayer that when those who come in to this gathering, uh, when they come in, maybe as a new person coming in, that they would sense uh, a bit of heaven when they join us um, together as we praise our Lord, as we sing, as we pray, as we read scripture, as we, as we preach and teach the word of God. Let me pray for us again, and we'll, uh, we'll get started this morning. We're returning, at, as you know, we're returning to our, our study in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. So let me pray, and we'll, we'll get started. Our gracious Lord and Father, we thank you this morning again. We praise your holy name that we can gather together here, gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We praise you that we can sing songs together. We can pray together. We can hear your word preached, exalting you in in all of these things. Father, I pray that you would give me a voice today, but it would be your words. Father, I pray that you would give the hearer ears to hear, that you would dwell within the believers here today so that they may understand your word and that it may be used in their lives to Glorify you in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. I looked down and I, I saw Philippians 3, 1 through 11. I said, well, this is not the right, this is certainly not the right passage. <laughs> so let me, let me read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. 1 through verse, I'm sorry, verse 13. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness, and confident access through faith in Him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. 
Well, this morning we're going to be in in verses, specifically verses 7 and 8. Let me, let's get started here. Occasionally a book comes out that arrests my soul. The Power of Christian Commitment by, Contentment that is, by Andrew Davis is one such book for me. The content, I would say, of the book is incredible. The author has revealed to me many areas where I fall short of true Christian contentment. The book is so good, as a matter of fact, that I hope that we can, in the summertime, I'm, I'm going to hope that we can combine the men's and women's studies for the summer to take us through it. I think it's that important that we would do so. Now, I would argue that one mark of a good book or sermon is the use of great illustrations. Great illustrations illuminate the great truths of the Bible, and I believe that good illustrations can be uh, used to illuminate multiple truths. Last week, I used a story from this very book about a rare and beautiful red diamond to help us understand the beauty of the mystery which had been revealed to Paul. This week, I want to use another story from the book to illustrate the call to ministry, which I believe to be the, the Apostle Paul's focus in the passage before us today. In the book, Davis tells of a story of Tim and Madge Pyrant. They are members of Davis's church, First Baptist Church of Durham, North Carolina. Tim passed away in June 2015 after battling a type of brain tumor, which is almost always fatal. In Davis's word, the author of the book, he's telling the story, he says this, Tim's faith-filled manner of living, fighting, and dying will stay with him for the rest of his life. And he relates the following story about Tim. He says this, Soon after he was diagnosed with cancer, Tim began keeping a journal. He says, John Piper wrote a booklet called Don't Waste Your Cancer, urging people to maximize God's glory in the process of living in pain and possibly dying. Tim took that to heart. He took it to heart and didn't certainly did not waste his cancer. He was a bright and shining light in the cancer ward at Duke University Hospital where he was treated. He was consistently joyful and trusting, openly speaking of Christ every chance that he got. But the words of his journal, which his loving wife, Madge, allowed to be read, and his funeral shine the brightest. Listen to what he wrote when he first heard the diagnosis. He says this. He says this, Trying to understand why I have cancer. I am very remiss not to concentrate on why God has blessed me with cancer. Like a beautiful diamond cut by the master jeweler himself, I see many reasons, he says facets, but also reasons why God has done this marvelous thing says this, facet number one, to show me that life is short, that every moment needs to be lived for His glory. I'm not sure, this is what he says, I'm not sure what that really looks like, but I don't want to miss it. How I do not want to miss it. I pray for progress and healing, and I, I really want that. I do not think that's wrong, as I've learned from Psalm 28, 1 and 2, and he, and he writes this out. Psalm 28, 1 and 2 says, To you, O Lord, I call my rock, do not be deaf to me, for if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help. When I lift 
up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Now, you can see and you can understand the, the, the fight that's going on in him. He wants to use the cancer. He wants God to use the cancer for his glory. But at the same time, his desire is to be healed. Facet number two. This is our reason number two. He says this, my cancer is from and is designed by God for my benefit, and get this, and for the benefit of others. This is a beautiful design. When I hold the diamond up to the light, I see deeply into my own life and into the lives of others. The many beneficiaries of this, cut and designed for our good, please do not let me miss this, Lord. Please do not let others miss this, Lord. Please help me seek your beauty in all of this, Lord. Let me see the, the master jeweler's work in this facet. As I continue to look at the cut of this beautiful diamond, I see its magnificence in a more opulent way. Oh, the beauty and the splendor of it all. But the beauty is not really the diamond itself, but in the master jeweler as he displays his beauty. What a strange dichotomy I see. The beauty of the Lord displayed in the beauty of a disease. For my good, but ultimately for His glory. Lord, please continue to reveal Your glory through my cancer. Let me and others be astounded by it as You work through it. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is a man who came face to face with the reality of Christ as he suffered a dreadful disease. There have been many brave Christians who have courageously faced disease and death in the same way. Now, quite obviously, Davis, the author of the book, uses this as an illustration of Christian contentment, being content even in great difficulty. And God is, God's call is for us to be content in all that we do, no matter our situation. But I think that there's another facet of God's glory which needs to be unearthed in this amazing story. Did you happen to notice? what this man was doing during his time of illness. He was sharing the love of Christ with a lost and dying world every chance that he got. He understood, he understood that the cancer was a great opportunity to be able to share the gospel with others who needed to hear it, especially those in the cancer ward, right? He didn't have the hope that he had. He was truly beloved, he was truly a dying man preaching to dying men, women, and children. He was, shining, he was a shining light in a dark world. And the question is, who put him in that position? Who put him there? Who gave him cancer, and who put him in that cancer ward? Well, it was the master jeweler himself. It was God who put him into service in that cancer ward. And if only for a brief time, God gave him glorious ministry a ministry that he could not have had outside of the battle with cancer that he was enduring. This makes sense, right? Especially when we consider Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, he prepared, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see, God gave him that opportunity. God sovereignly placed him in that. Now, beloved, I think this is Paul's point in the next few verses of Ephesians 3. We've been studying this intensely personal section of Ephesians. Of the Apostle Paul has been pouring out his heart for the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of this mystery which was revealed to him by Christ Jesus. 
In the first two chapters of this letter, Paul had revealed this incredible mystery. And in chapter 3, he pleads with the church at Ephesus to continue the good fight of the faith. He wanted them to understand, Paul that is, wanted them to understand that his current suffering was nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory. He wanted them to press on even though he was an apostle in chains. Now, I would argue that these verses prove that Paul wrote this letter and that he wrote it specifically to the church at Ephesus. Now, we know, starting in chapter 4, that Paul will begin to lay out what it means to live according to these great truths. But in chapter 3, he's encouraging the church at Ephesus to continue the fight, to push forward. Just listen to his heart in chapter 3, verse 13. We read it earlier. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart. Not to lose heart at what? My tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Think of it this way. Paul writes this letter as if it's the, the last thing he will ever say to this church. He had ministered with them day and night for a period of three years. He had great familiarity with them, with the brethren in Ephesus. And in this section of the letter, he encourages them. He, he begs them to keep going forward, to continue forward, to press on. In 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul similarly calls Timothy to, to fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of etern the eternal life to which you were called, and you, were, and you made the good confession in, front of, in the presence of many witnesses. The point is, is that Paul wanted them to press forward, to fight the good fight. By the way... Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus, right? And Paul had modeled this fight of the faith in his own life. He, he listened to his final words in, in the New Testament, some of his final words in the New Testament in 2 Timothy 4, 7. He says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. So Paul is saying, look at me. I, I've modeled this in my life. I've modeled what you need to do going forward. You see, these weren't just mere words for, for Paul. They were his life. He knew the importance of the gospel, and he was willing to suffer and die for it. But he also knew that it was God who had called him into this ministry. It was God who had placed him into this service. And really, that's where we pick up this week. Brothers and sisters, I, I want you to know that if I knew I was preaching a final sermon to this church, it would be this sermon. But I, I would also preach this text as my first sermon. I, I, I feel that it's that important. As we plumb these verses, I hope that you will see the God's power displayed in Paul's life and understand that we have access to that very same power. Now in this passage, Paul gives the church at Ephesus, four or five characteristics, that is, of God's call to ministry. God calls us to ministry first in His prerogative. Let's look at the first characteristic of God's call to ministry. Look at the text. Look at verse 7. Of which I was made a minister. Here Paul says that he is a minister of the gospel. This word could be translated servant. So therefore he's saying uh, that he's a servant of the gospel. In a general sense, it means this word means one who assists another. Paul frequently uses this word to, to refer to his special work of urging the Gentiles to be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. 
And it's in this sense that Paul is saying that I am a servant of the gospel. He serves the gospel in the sense that he preaches it to the Gentiles. God enables them to hear and believe and receive, but God has used Paul as his mouthpiece to preach. As such, the Gentiles are reconciled to God and incorporated by the Spirit into the body of Christ. Now, I want you to see that in Paul's mind, we are chosen to be servants of the gospel. This fits his theology, right, of what we've learned in the first two chapters. There's no room for prima donnas in the gospel ministry. Gospel ministry is not about us. It's about God. It's about uh, Christ. Listen to Paul's heart in 1 Corinthians 3, 5. He says this. He says, what then is Apollos? And, and what is Paul? Servants. Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Again, here we see the heart of Paul. Even the most eminent of Christians among us, even, even the ones that are, are seen everywhere, are but servants, are but servants of our King. We speak so highly of men, but they're nothing but clay pots. Notice in 1 Corinthians 3, who gives us the opportunity to preach the gospel? It's God. Who gives us, who gives us, the, who gives us the increase? It's God. The man who plants is nothing. The man who plants is nothing. The man who waters is nothing. The one who causes the growth is God, and he gets all the glory. This is Paul's heart, and it must be our attitude as well. Must be our attitude as well. As we plant this church here at GBC, we can't look at it and say, look at all that we've done. It's all, it's all about Him. It's all about God. We're just tools in the hands of God. He uses us for His glory. He does what He wants with us. He places us where He wants to place us. And we don't get the choice in the matter. When Angie and I were in, I tell this story quite often, but when Angie and I were in discussion about going to seminary, we had moved to Nevada to South Carolina. I remember saying, I can't, I remember telling her as we were going back and forth about whether to go to, go to California to go to seminary. I said, I would say, I can't believe God would move us from Florida to Nevada and back to South Carolina only to send us back across the country to California. And that's what he did. That's what he did. That's what God does. He does it according to his prerogative. And oh, by the way, then he sent us back to Florida. So think about that. How many times is that crossing the country? And and here's here's what's amazing. I want to be here. I want to be here for the next 40 years if that's what God will do. But I must recognize that he may choose to send us elsewhere in the future. That's his prerogative. It's all by God's sovereign choice. We are nothing more than clay in the hands of the potter. Psalm 115.3 says this, But our God is in the heavens, and He does does whatever He pleases, right? And whatever He pleases is always good. Always good. You must recognize that God is not good merely because He does good things. He's good, therefore whatever He does is good. Psalm 145.7 says this, Men shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant, 
abundant goodness. We serve a, a good God. We serve a God who does things in his, according to His own prerogative, and we have no choice in the matter. But that's a good thing. That's a good thing because He's a, he's a sovereign God. He's a God who knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning, so who am I to question Him? Beloved, it is God's prerogative to flip, put you in the church He desires for you. It is... God's prerogative to put you in the family that He desires for you. It's God's prerogative to give you the husband that He has given you. It's God's prerogative to give you the wife that He has given you. It is God's prerogative to place you in the ministry He wants you to have. It is God's prerogative as a, as a child sitting here today to give you the mother and father that He's given you. It's God's prerogative to produce opportunities for ministry. As a young man, I had many aspirations of the great things that God may do with me. I have realized that Jesus places us where He wants us, and He gives us the ministry He wants to give us according to His sovereign will, and that may be cleaning the toilets. It may be doing even worse things, even harder things. You just don't make these choices for yourself. Just this week, I heard the story of a man who was a young man, had it all in ministry. He had the Midas touch, you might say. Everything that he touched turned to gold. The youth group, he was a young man, the youth group that he led had a larger attendance than the church. But he was brought low when his wife was struck with mental illness. For ten years, he and his wife struggled through this mental illness that she was struck with. You see, that was God's sovereign choice for that man. Beloved, we are servants of the gospel. You are servants of the gospel, therefore you are a servant of God. You serve those whom you are ministering to, but you serve God by doing so. And He places you where He wants to by His prerogative. Paul served the Gentiles to the point of suffering and even death. That was Paul's mindset we must exhibit the same attitude. This leads us to the second characteristic of God's call to ministry. God calls us to ministry by His preference. By His preference. Look at verse 7 again. It says, Of which I was made minister according to the gift of God's grace. Paul sees the, his ministry to the gospel as a gift of the grace of God. Brethren, we will continue to see this theme throughout the rest of the letter. In Ephesians 4, 7, Paul says that every believer has been given these grace gifts. In 4, 7, it says this, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We've all been given gifts, but there are some who've been given gifts for the equipping and building up of the body of Christ. Listen to Ephesians 4, 12, or 4, 11. It says this, and he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, of service that is, to the building up of the body of Christ. So these gifts, the apostleship, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are gifts that God uses to build up the body of Christ. These gifts are used to serve the body of Christ. And at the end of, of his life, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6, he says this, 
kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. In other words, when God saved Timothy, God gave him gifts, and he expected Timothy to use it boldly for the proclamation of the, of the gospel. But he does the same with us. He gives us gifts. It may not be uh, the proclamation gifts that we're talking about here. It may be the gift of serving. It could be any of the gifts, but, but he expects us to use them boldly. Just listen to 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Brothers and sisters, at salvation, Christ Jesus gave you and I gifts by His grace. We are called to boldly use them for the glory of Christ. We should never miss that Jesus gives these gifts to every believer by His Spirit for the edification of the body. And He expects us to use them. Now, Paul's gift was, was the foundational proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles. Timothy was called to preach and teach and shepherd to the flock. Now, back, back to our text in Ephesians 3, Paul never got over this. Paul never got over the fact that, that God used him, the foremost of sinners, the foremost of all sinners in ministry. So it makes sense when he would refers to his ministry that he would refer to it as a gift of grace. This is all by God's preference. He sovereignly chooses how he will use us and where he will use us, and he always chooses according to his goodness. We have no room to argue. This is all according to his preference. Obviously, we're not all going to be given Paul's level of responsibility in the church. No matter your gift, though, you must use it for God's glory and for the edification of the saints. Paul says this very thing in Romans 12. Just listen. Romans 12, 1, he says this, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Notice the service there. And then he says this in verse 6, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace which was given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service and sir in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, or he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. See, God wants us, He gives us these gifts by His grace, and He expects us to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to Him, which is our spiritual service of worship, and He expects us to use our gifts for His glory, for the edification of the body. <clears throat> you understand, beloved, that your gifts come from God by His grace. Your gifts, your gifts, the gifts that God has given you come to Him by His, come to you by His grace. And if our gifts are given by His grace, then you must value those gifts. And we as a church must value those gifts. You understand that they must be used boldly for His glory, not with a spirit of timidity. This was Paul's encouragement to Timothy. And Paul modeled this in his own life. He was the apostle in chains. And I hope you also understand that your gifts must never be wasted. Paul 
was in, when Paul was in prison at the end of his life, he said these words to Timothy. For which I suffer hardship, this is 2 Timothy 2.9, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But he says this, but the word of God is not imprisoned. So he was suffering for the sake of, of Christ. He was suffering because Christ placed him there, but he understood that he still had ministry to do. And he never stopped it. He never stopped it. I, I always remember at the end of 2 Timothy, he tells, he tells says, bring me my cloak, bring me my books, bring me my parchments, bring me the, the things that I need to do ministry. Beloved, your situation does not matter. God has you where He has you for His purposes. You are called to use your gifts for His glory. You remember my opening story about this, that man with a fa fatal brain tumor. He used the situation to shine the light of Christ in a grave situation. Now you may say, I don't know my gifting. How, how do I know? How do I know? Well, I've heard it said, and I believe it to be true. If you don't know your gifts, then start to serve. People will notice where you're gifted. They will say, do more of that. And if you're not gifted somewhere, they're going to say, don't do that. Let me do that for you. That's the way it works, brethren. Boldly use your gifts for God's glory, not, not for your own. Let's look at the third characteristic of God's call to ministry. God calls us to ministry according to His power. Look at again at verse 7. Verse 7 is packed, isn't it? It says this, this gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of His power. According to the working of His power. According to Paul, his gift was imparted to him by the power of God. This should remind us, if, if you've been hearing this series of sermons, it should remind us of Ephesians 1.19. Look, look back at that verse. Actually, starting in verse 18, he says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. In chapter 1, Paul here prays that the church at Ephesus would recognize the effectual power of God toward us who believe. He wanted them to be aware of what God had accomplished in their lives. And in one twenty, he says this, he proclaims that that same power, or the same power that raised Jesus from the grave and seated Him at the right hand of the, uh, His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that has been named, not only in this age, but in also in the age to come, above everything, right? That same power, that same power lives in us. That same power you have access to. Most of us recognize that God is powerful, right? We, we recognize that God is powerful. After all, He created the universe by the word of His power. He created you and me as, as new men and women in Christ, as a as new cre creation, as a new creation, as new creatures in Christ. We can, we can read the Word of God and we can see the greatness of His power. Just listen to the psalmist in Psalm 145, 6. He says this, Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of what? Your greatness. So we recognize His power. We recognize how how He's powerful, all-powerful. 
but we forget that his power is actuated in the life of the believer. His power is actuated in the life of the church. We exhibit, as the body of Christ, we exhibit his power. We see people come to know him through the preaching of the gospel. We see before our eyes, we see people become a new creation. If that doesn't excite you, I, I, I don't understand. Back in chapter 3, notice that Paul says this gift was given to him according to the working of his power. This is God's power realized in our lives. This is God's power realized in the life of the church. Now, I want, to, I want you to recognize the progression of Paul's thought. In chapter 1, he had prayed that the Ephesians would understand the surpassing greatness of his power. He prayed that they would recognize that God's power had raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at, the right hand in the, at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Everything that we consider to be powerful in this world, Christ is far above it. In chapter 2, Paul taught them that before Christ, they were among the realm of the dead. They were dead in their sins and trespass, or trespasses and sins. They were dead men walking. But I want you to notice the parallel here. They were walking according to the ways of this world, according to the power of the air. They were walking according to the power of the one who rules this world, the world that we see, Satan. They were living according to the lust of their flesh, but the same power... The same power which raised Christ from the dead and seated Him on the throne of God raised them with Him. Raised them from the dead with Him and seated them in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's the same power. The same power. And in 2.8 we see that God has done this according to His grace. Salvation is the gift of God. And in 2.10 we see that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? for good works. Now in chapter 3, Paul shows how these truths have powerfully intersected his own life as he's preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. He's seeing the church be born, the church be built. He's seeing those who are far off come to know Christ, and those who are near come to know Christ and be reconciled to God through the gospel. You see, Paul is amazed that God saved him. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor of the church. He was in hearty agreement, it says in Acts, with killing Stephen, with stoning him. He was dead. Paul was dead in his trespasses and sins, yet God had shown him grace. God raised him up and seated him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he prepared him for those good works that he would walk in beforehand and these are the good works that paul is talking about right now and encouraging the ephesian church to continue on to press forward in ministry even after he's gone as such paul paul's life becomes a powerful example of the power of god working in the life of the believer that's what that's what paul is saying here paul is saying look look at me look at what christ not look at me in the sense of look at me, but look at what Christ has done through me. Look at the power of God as evidence through me, and you have access to that same power by His grace. 
In chapter 1, Paul had prayed that his readers might understand the vastness of the power that God had, had put in effect for them. According to the commentator, Frank Thielman, he says this, Here in 3.7, Paul may be subtly presenting himself to them as a practical example of how this works. God's great power was behind Paul's own conversion from persecutor to herald of the good news and remains effective in his ministry despite his imprisonment and suffering. Boy, what a weak quote. He may be subtly presenting himself. Thielman's a great commentator, so I, I want to be careful. But the point is, is I don't think that he is a, I don't think he's subtly presenting himself. I think he's saying, look at my life. I am a clear example of God's power working in the life of the believer because I was a blasphemer. I was a, I was the least of all saints. And look what God has done through me. And look what God can do through you. Beloved, as Christians, we must recognize the power of God working in our lives. We must recognize, you must recognize, that is, the power of God working in your own life. The only way you'll ever reach the pinnacle of what God has for you. Just uh, this past week, I was, I read, I read widely, I read a lot of books, and I was reading a book about a phenomenon called flow. You might, you might know it or have heard of it as runner's high or the zone. God has designed our bodies to enter this state which allows us to perform amazing physical and mental feats. It's, it's crazy what God has done that way. But I, I can't help but think that you can live your life in the zone of God's power if you just recognize it. If you just recognize what God can, is, can accomplish through you, you can live in the zone all the time. If you recognize His power working through you through His Holy Spirit. Beloved, His power, His power powerfully, powerfully intersects our normal lives. I'm not saying that all of us will do what Paul accomplished, right? Many of us are called to ordinary lives doing very ordinary things. You're called to raise your children. You're called to love your spouse. You're called to clean your home. You're called to work to support your families. You're called to faithfully serve in the church. You're called to be a shoulder to cry on. But you're also called to share the gospel with unbelievers, including your children. You're called to love your spouse in the power of Christ. You're called to clean your home and keep your yard tidy so that you will be an example of Christ to the stranger. You're called to serve the body with your gifts so our people can see the power of Christ working through you. And that could be, yes, cleaning the toilets. You're called to use the Word of God to counsel those who cry on your shoulder. I mean, this is all ordinary stuff. The power of God powerfully intersects those things. You may be called to preach the gospel. You may be called to preach the gospel in far-flung places like Paul. But probably not. You could be called to sacrificially give and support the gospel effort by holding the rope at home. Maybe that's what you're called to do. You may be called to faithfully raise your family in the Lord. You may be called to live out the rest of your days in the cancer ward. But the truth is, 
we are all called to the gospel ministry. And we've all been given the power of God so we can't ultimately fail if we trust in Him. Let's look at the fourth characteristic of God's call to ministry. God calls us to ministry despite our position. Look at verse 8. Paul says, To me, the very least of all saints. This is a refrain that we see throughout Paul's life. He completely recognizes that he doesn't deserve the grace that he's received. Now, I want you to understand, this is not mock humility. Paul is not being, as you might, as you might call him, a humble brag. Paul truly understood that he did not deserve to be a servant of the gospel. He did not deserve the ministry that he had been given. And this phrase is very similar to what he, to, what he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. In that chapter, Paul argues for the re- resurrection of Christ, but he maintains that Christ appeared to many people at his, at his, after his resurrection. And he says this, He also appeared to the apostles including himself. So he includes himself amongst the apostles, but he says this in verse 8, that he appeared last of all as to one untimely born. He appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Again, this is not Paul in in false humility. Paul truly believed this. This drove him. He recognizes that he was the least of the apostles because of what he had did to the church, what he had done to the church as an unbeliever. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15:10, he says this, "But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. It didn't prove empty. It didn't prove empty. And beloved, real quick, it doesn't prove empty in your life either. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with with me. Again, we see the grace of God being the main driver in Paul's life, and that fits, again, his theology, right? That it's all about Christ. This grace which was given to him is powerful enough to not only save him, but to drive him to intense labor in the service of the gospel. This grace was powerful enough to cause him to suffer for the cause of the gospel. That's his current situation as he pens this letter. He's imprisoned for the sake of Christ, literally imprisoned by Christ for the sake of the Gentiles. Again, this is a a testament of, of the power of God. Power of God working through Paul's life. Power of God which Paul knew to be working mightily through him. You see, Paul's ministry was not possible outside of God's grace. It was not possible outside of the working of his power, and it's clear in Paul's life. There is absolutely no way that a blasphemer could have become what Paul was on his own power, in his own strength, right? It's clearly shown when we think about his background, when we contrast his background with his current position as a proclaimer of the gospel. He's the last person you and I or I would have chosen for this task. The very last. Paul, back in Ephesians, doesn't explicitly reference his background, but it's certain that that church would have known it. They would have known where he came from. 
Again, Tillman, Tillman, the commentator, states, the story of Paul's conversion from persecutor of the church to preacher of the gospel was widely known during his lifetime, even among Christians who had never, he had never seen. And, and it was a subject, he says this, it was a subject of praise to God. When we see what, what God had done through Paul, in spite, despite his background, it's a, it's a subject, it's a, it's a subject of praise to God. And clearly, here in Ephesians 3, Paul continues to be in awe that God would move him from persecutor of the church to servant of the gospel. Beloved, we should always be in awe that the holy God of this universe would use a sinful person for His purposes. I hope that you are amazed that He would use you if you, in knowing what you've done in your life, knowing what I've done. I'm amazed that God would use me, an unclean man, for His purposes. I'm reminded of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Upon seeing the Lord on His throne, Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. He says this, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, Amazingly, Isaiah had, was being commissioned for service to, a thri- to the thrice holy God. I'm reminded also of a similar scene in Revelation 1 where the glorified Christ appeared to the Apostle John. John says in, in Revelation 1.17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And in Revelation 1.19, Jesus revealed to John what would happen at the end of the day, at end of days. True servants, then, of the King, beloved, never get over being called as such. True servants of the King never get over being called as such. True servants of the King recognize how far short they truly fall. They realize that it's God's grace and power which puts us into service. Beloved, I I must join Paul and Isaiah and John in saying, I don't deserve to be here preaching to you today. I don't stand before you in my own power. I I don't stand before you in my own strength. The only reason I'm standing here capable of preaching to you today is because God has put me into service. I fully realize He could use anyone He chooses. He could put, literally, quite literally, He could put a donkey up here and, and preach His Word. I fully realize He could remove me at any time. God places us in service despite our position in the world. Despite who we are. Look at your text. He says this, this this grace, look at your text in verse 8. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Paul never got over the fact that he was chosen to preach the gospel. Uh, This word preach is the Greek word which which is translated good news. And in this form, it refers to the proclamation of the good news. Specifically, it is the good news that those who are near the Jews and those who are far the Gentiles can now have peace with God through Christ. Here Paul refers to the preaching of the good news, the gospel of Christ. He continues to be in awe of the value of that message, of this message that he was entrusted with. He was tasked by God's 
grace to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. Beloved, these riches are not like the riches of the world. They're not fleeting. They don't just go away. These riches are found only in the person of Christ. A.W. Tozer says this, those who seek the deeper Christian life and those who want the riches that are in Christ Jesus seek no place, no wealth, no things, only Christ. Beloved, if you want these true riches, they're only found in Christ. And those riches that we're speaking of are beyond anything we can completely understand. And the word unfathomable means that they're untraceable. His riches are beyond the ability to, ability of you and I to investigate. We can't trace them out with our finite minds. In other words, they're so great that we can't truly understand them. We can't imagine the greatness of what we have been given in Christ. We see glimpses in Scripture. We understand just enough to keep us going, but we don't understand enough to overwhelm us. Perhaps it's good enough to know what we've been saved from, right? His wrath. So He only gives us a small glimpse of what we've been saved to. But that knowledge causes us to persevere even amid great difficulties, right? Because of what we've been promised, we can persevere knowing what God is going to do in the future. What he's, how He's going to bless those he, He's promised to bless. We must, though, recognize that our salvation is only the beginning of these unfathomable riches. Listen to Jerry Bridges. He says this, Faith is the gift of God. It's part of the whole salvation package that God gives to us through the work of Christ for us and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's not our contribution, so to speak, to God's great plan of salvation. God does it all. Then he says this. It's part of, so faith, is part of the unsearchable searchable riches of Christ. Faith in our salvation. I hope you recognize all that you've been given in Christ even though they're untraceable. It's not the first time that Paul rich, or mentions our riches in Christ. In chapter 1, verse 4, he told the Ephesians that they had been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. In verse chapter 1, verse 7, he told them that we have redemption through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. In verse 18, he prayed that the Ephesian church would understand the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. In chapter 2, verse 7, he exclaimed that God had raised us up and seated us in the heavenlies in Christ so that, verse 7, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Again, we see the, the parallelism in Paul's writing. He taught them these great truths in chapters 1 and 2, then he's demonstrating them in his own life in chapter 3. And if we follow Paul's argument here, he's saying he considers himself unworthy of even salvation, yet 
He finds himself entrusted to preach the gospel. He preaches it in God's power, and now he's encouraging the church at Ephesus to continue to preach the gospel so that others would come to know and understand all that they had been given in Christ. Let me, let me conclude here. We've seen four of the five characteristics of God's call to ministry. We'll look at the fifth one next week. It's God calls us to ministry for His plan. If you're a believer here today, this is, underlined, this is a call to ministry. This is a call to ministry. This is a call to serve this body, to serve the body of Christ, to serve the church with your gifts. Now, I don't mean that you're necessarily called to preach or be a missionary. Some of you may be called in that way, but all of you are called to gospel ministry. This is a call to arms. This is a call to service. Husbands, this is a call to love your wives as Christ loves the church. Wives, this is a call to lovingly submit to your husbands as they lead you in Christ. Fathers, this is a call to love your families and lead them. Mothers and fathers, this is a call to rear your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Employees, this is a call to do your work as unto the Lord. Church members, this is a call to serve the Lord by serving His church. Go and share the gospel so that others will have peace and with God. Beloved, I could go on and on, but I want you to notice something. I'm just doing what Paul will do in chapters 4 through 6. Again, he taught the truths of this mystery in chapters 1 and 2. He's showing himself to be a model of these things in chapter 3. Chapters 4 through 6, he's going to say, you go and walk in these as well. Go and do these things. Go and be this type of person. In other words, now that you've been given the truth, now that you've been shown all that you have in Christ, go and live it out before God and men. If you're an unbeliever here today, I, as amazing as the gospel is, it may not sound appealing to you. I, I'm preaching of the unfathomable riches of God, and that may not be attractive to you. You may be more, you're probably, if you're sitting here today as an unbeliever, you're probably more attracted to the riches of, the, of this world than you are the unfathomable riches of God. Because you can, you know, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush kind of idea. Listen to what Oswald, Oswald Sanders states. There's nothing attractive about the gospel to the natural man. The only man who finds the gospel attractive is the man who is convicted of sin. I hope, unbeliever, I hope you'll come to understand the unfathomable riches of God in Christ. Trusting in Christ's Sacrifice on the cross is not merely an avoidance of the wrath of God. It's certainly that, but it's not merely that. It's much more than that. Many times unbelievers see Christianity as just following a bunch of rules. But I want you to know that Christians obey God. We've talked a lot about this among the men. Christians obey God because of the joy it brings us to do so. We we're brought joy to obey Him. So Christianity is not about a bunch of rules. 
It's about what Christ has done in us and through us, and is doing through us, that is. We obey because we are overwhelmed by what Christ has done. We are like Paul. We understand all that we've been given in Christ despite our sinfulness. If we're true believers, we, we look at ourselves and we understand who we are uh, outside of Christ and we look and see what Christ has done in us and we say, I'm the least of all sinners. Oh, unbeliever, realizing your sinfulness, your need for grace is the first step to salvation. You have to realize that you can't obey the rules and be saved. You can't obey the law. It's impossible. God's law then points us to our need for His grace. You see, the law is a tutor which points us to our need of Christ. I'm reminded of, a, of an analogy that we talked about in our men's meeting last week. You have a life preserver. You have a sign over the top of the life preserver. And it says, here's the life preserver, right? Somebody's drowning. Do you throw them the life preserver or do you throw them the sign? The law is that sign pointing your need for that life preserver. It's the life preserver that saves you. It's coming to understand your need for Christ, your need, your utter brokenness before Christ, your bankruptcy, your total inability to follow the rules. I pray that the unbeliever here today would call out to Christ even today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this gift of the ministry of the Gospel that You've given all of us. It's exemplified in the life of Paul. It's Paul who modeled this life, but it's a call for all of us to walk according to this grace that we've been given. Father, I thank you this day for your word and how powerful it is. Father, I pray that it would be used even today for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.